given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All scriptures God breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we open up the word of God, let's make sure that we're prepared for study this morning. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to study God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege we have today to gather together to study your Word. Father, your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is in your light that we see light. Father, we thank you that we have this infallible truth as a guide for our thinking that illuminates everything in our lives. It gives us absolute truth. Now, Father, as we look at your word this morning, pray that we would be able to understand the things that we study under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and that we would be challenged to apply the things that we learn in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. And we will continue and finish our study today of this section of the Gospel of John, which really began back in about John chapter 5 which represents this continual antagonism and conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. As I've said before, John can be almost laid out as a court brief. It is presenting the case of Jesus Christ, the prosecutor against mankind, and the case of the Pharisees representing humanity, trying to gain approval to God on their own merits. John lays this out over and again. He uses terms that come out of a courtroom setting that are, that are loaded with baggage from a legal framework. He says at the end of the gospel, these were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. That these at the beginning of that verse refers to the signs he mentioned in the previous verse. These signs, these evidences, this is a rational faith. This is not a faith that is super rational or anti-rational or irrational, but is based upon solid, objective, historical evidence. And so John presents the case for Jesus being the Messiah. Part of this uh, builds, his argument builds, the conflict between the Pharisees and the, uh, and the Lord continues to build through John 7, John 8, John 9, and culminates in John 10, 
with the Good Shepherd Discourse where Jesus basically says that I am the Good Shepherd as opposed to you Pharisees who are supposed to be the shepherds of the nation and you have uh, failed in your responsibilities. I am the only one who's qualified to lead the people. And in order to understand the background for this entire shepherd analogy, we must understand a few things from the Old Testament. So stick your finger in John 10 and turn back to the Old Testament, to Ezekiel chapter 34, to understand the background to this entire analogy. The Pharisees and the people who heard this would not have been ignorant of the passage in Ezekiel. So when Jesus begins to say that, that He is the Good Shepherd, as we have already seen in this, they, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. Now in Ezekiel 34, verse 2, we read, this is the word of the Lord that came to Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And here we see the term shepherds is used to refer to the leaders and rulers of the nation. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says Yahweh Elohim, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock. point is that it's the responsibility of the leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, to feed the flock by teaching them doctrine. Skip down to verse 8. Verse 8 we read, As I live, declares the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Surely, because my flock has become a prey. So the picture now is of wolves who have gotten into the sheep and who who are abusing the sheep. Surely, because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for the lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock. This is the indictment of the religious leaders at the time that Ezekiel wrote, but it has application to the Pharisees. My shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. They were more concerned about fleecing the flock for their own benefit. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And then beginning in verse 10, we have the judgment pronounced against these false shepherds. Thus says the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I shall demand my sheep from them, and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves any more, but I shall deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. So here we have the Lord God taking on the function of a shepherd. So here we see the Lord himself is identified with the shepherd. So the shepherd is divinity, deity. I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and I will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of Israel. Of course, that is a prophecy of what takes place at the end of the tribulation when all of regenerate Israel is gathered together for the establishment of the new covenant with Israel at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But it has application to what we're studying. Verse 14, I will feed them in a good pasture, and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down in good grazing ground, 
and they will feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. What did Jesus just do in, in John 9? He is the one who uh, restored sight to the blind man and saves him at the end of the chapter. And it is Jesus who is exemplifying this by his actions. I will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. So we see that this is what exemplifies and characterizes the ministry of this divine shepherd who is, by application, the Messiah. Now, in all of this, we see the Lord identifying himself as a shepherd. The shepherd is God. But then there is a shift in verse 23. Turn down to verse 23. There we read, Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Wait a minute. We have shifted now. The servant is not only seen as divine, but now is human, is a human descendant of David. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them, and he will feed them himself, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord God, will be their, the Lord will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So what we see here is a divine and a human shepherd. The interpretation of the passage truly relates to the millennium. But remember, Jesus is coming as the Messiah to offer the kingdom. It was rejected, and so it's postponed to until the second advent. By application, we see that the, the, this is the background to everything Jesus says about a shepherd. So Ezekiel 34 pictures a divine and a human shepherd. And this is what Jesus is going to be referring to when he comes to John 10.30, and he says at the conclusion of this entire uh, discourse on the shepherd, he says, I and the Father are one. He identifies himself as the God-man and the God-man shepherd. Now, at this point, the Pharisees are going to react to him. They understand all the symbols of Scripture. They know what he's saying. They understand Ezekiel 34, and they know exactly what Jesus is going to be is, is claiming here. You see, there's really only three positions that you can take towards Jesus. First of all, you can accept his claims for who he says he is, that he is the Lord of the universe. He is the God-man, undiminished deity, and true humanity together in one, the one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all eternity. You can accept him for who he claimed to be, or he is being intentionally deceptive, in which case he is a liar. The, only, the third option is that he is a lunatic. This is clearly very well spelled out by Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. These are the only three options. You cannot conclude that Jesus is a good man. You cannot, or merely a good man, you cannot conclude that Jesus is just a good a moral teacher or religious innovator. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be the only way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Well, a person who makes those kinds of claims is either telling the truth or they're lying. If they're lying, they're either intentionally deceiving people and they're a liar, or they're unintentionally deceiving people because they are self-deceived or crazy, they're a lunatic. They're making false claims. 
So these are the only three options. You can't conclude that Jesus is just a good man. Now, when we look at this passage, when we stopped last time at the beginning of this verse, we have to understand the context. This is a powerful context. This is one of the most uh, pregnant chapters for doctrine in the entire gospel. Starting in verse 28 and 29, you have the doctrine of eternal security, which we studied the last time. And then you have the doctrine of the Trinity in verse 30. And then in verses uh, 31 down through 36, you have a crucial passage for the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture. So within just a few verses, you have a background of three foundational doctrines in the New Testament. So let's make sure we understand the context here. John 10:28 Jesus said, "I give eternal life to them." That is his prerogative as the Messiah. Those who trust in Jesus Christ alone are given eternal life. We're told that it comes from specifically from the second person of the Trinity. The verb that is used here is the Greek verb didomi. D-I-D-O-M-I, and it is the present active indicative, first person singular. Now, it means to give, to bestow, to grant. And it is always, when God is the subject as it is here, it is always the verb indicating grace, unmerited favor. Every time you see give with God as the subject, it should remind us of grace, that we do nothing to earn or deserve our salvation. God did everything for us. It is Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who claims that He is the one who bestows eternal life to the sheep as part of His role as the Good Shepherd. He says, I give to them. And this is the dative plural of advantage of the third person plural pronoun indicating I give eternal life for their advantage. And what he gives is described in the, in the um, accusative case as zoe ionios. And here it's in the accusative case, which always denotes the direct object or limits, in some sense, the action of the verb, describes here what, is, what it is that is given, that Jesus gives eternal life to them, and then we have the result indicated in the next clause, and the result is that they shall never perish. We studied the doctrine of eternal security the last two Sundays and won't review that, but the negative here is a double negative in the Greek, u and may. These are the two different words for no in the Greek language. Now, in English, it's bad grammar to use a double negative. In fact, in English, if you use a double, double negative, one cancels out the other and it becomes a positive. But in Greek, you can compound your negatives to intensify the negation. And so when you want to state something very strongly as being impossible, what you do is you use both negatives, ume. In other words, Jesus is saying that it is impossible, they shall never, for them to ever, ever perish. The, the uh, verb there is apolumi, which means to be destroyed or to perish, and it is in the aorist middle subjunctive. Now, I always like to do this every now and then, make sure we're all on our toes. The subjunctive mood is the mood of potentiality. 
what this means is there is absolutely no potential or possibility that they can lose their salvation. The aorist subjunctive is used along with this negative as the strongest form of negation in the Greek language. We saw that same construction over in Galatians 5.16. Walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the sin nature. Same kind of construction. It indicates absolute impossibility for the fulfillment of the verb. So there we see that once Jesus Christ gives eternal life, which happens at the point of the salvation, they shall never, ever perish. It's impossible. And no one will be able to snatch, that means to grab or pull out, snatch them out of my hand. And we saw that this hand imagery is is a metaphor for the omnipotence of both Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and God the Father in the next verse. Then we looked at verse 29. In verse 29, there's a shift from Jesus Christ to the Father. My Father, which is a reference to God the Father, is the subject of the verb and who becomes the referent for the, for the relative clause. My Father, who has given them? It is the Father who has delegated this responsibility of giving eternal life to God the Son. It is, so the God the Son is not operating independently of the Father. And we see this in terms of His role that there is subordination. Now this is such a crucial doctrine. There is subordination in the Trinity. Subordination of role, not subordination of person. This is fundamental because of certain debates that are going on today, especially in light of the whole issue of the role of women in ministry. There are many churches that are ordaining women to be pastors, and they make a big issue about being deacons and some other things, but the big issue is uh, being pastors. And the argument runs, and the argument comes out of the whole feminist uh, orientation to reality, that subordination means that you're unequal, that women are not equal to men. And so they make a false premise there. And what you have to realize is that the Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ is completely equal in his person to God, and yet there is also subordination. So to be in a place of subordination to authority does not mean you're less than. And see, they don't really believe that. They go into all kinds of scenarios where they're in authority relationships with a boss or in sports or whatever, where there's somebody in authority and they have to have subordination. And it doesn't mean the person in authority is better. In fact, in a lot of situations in life, you're going to find yourself in a position of authority to somebody who is uh, maybe very immoral, very lacks integrity, maybe someone you can't respect, maybe someone who isn't as prepared as you, maybe someone who doesn't know the job as well as you do, who can't perform your job as well as you do, yet you're placed in a position of uh, subordination and to respect their position, even if as a person you can't respect them. So subordination has nothing to do with ontological equality, contrary to what the feminist agenda says. Subordination has simply to do with function and role, and God has designed the male 
with one role. He's to be the head of the home. He is the one who was given responsibility to tend and keep the garden. And the woman, the wife, is given a secondary role. It's no less important. Her job is to help him in the fulfillment of his designated task. And so the man being the head of the house, man being the, the one who is to exercise the gift of pastor-teacher, women are not supposed to exercise that particular role, or, or that's crucial to understand that conjunction in the Greek there in 1 Timothy 2, uh, 10 and 11, or 1 Timothy 2.12, that women are not to either teach men or to exercise authority over men when it comes to teaching the Word of God. That's the context there, is some kind of authority thing where they are actually expositing, explaining the Scriptures. It doesn't have to do with whether or not a woman can teach math down at the uh, high school and teach or down at college and have men in the classroom. It doesn't have to do with women being bosses in a particular job or career. This whole passage deals with what's going on in the church in relationship to teaching the Word of God. But you see here that here we have a social issue that we're faced with in terms of the, the feminist agenda that, that roles are interchangeable between men and women because there's really no distinction. You know, don't look in the mirror with your clothes off and that's not the issue. You know, it's like we're blind to that. God, just as God designated physical distinctions between men and women, there are also soul distinctions between men and women. And these are related to the role that God designated for them from the beginning of creation. Every time the Apostle Paul deals with this subject in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 2, a couple of other passages, he always gives us his reason, God created the man first and then the woman. It always goes back to creation. It's never based on what the culture the Greek culture was doing at that time or what the Jewish culture was doing at that time. It's all based on God's order of creation. And so if you, if you accept this hidden assumption that underlies the entire feminist orientation, you are accepting a view of reality that is an attack on the Trinity. We have to understand the Trinity is not just something we believe, divorced from everything else. Yes, I believe God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But it means something. It has implications on how we think about all kinds of things in life. And and it has impacts on all kinds of very sophisticated thoughts in philosophy and metaphysics and in ethics and in epistemology. It truly changes how you think about things. It's not just something you say, okay, that's what I was taught in Sunday school. Let's move on. But it impacts uh, everything from marriage relationships to to philosophy of law, philosophy of economics, and all kinds of things, it has an, has an impact if we think it out. But that gets beyond our subject for the day. We get into the fact that Jesus is saying, My Father who has given them to me. This is the responsibility that God has given them. It is a perfect participle, which indicates that this is an action that occurred in the past with results that go on throughout eternity. Once we have been given to the Father in terms of God's plan designated at the Council of Divine Decrees in eternity past, then nothing can be lost. And that's the same principle we saw in Romans 8, 28 to 30 when we studied eternal security last week. Is that once God has set this, it cannot be changed and we can't lose that salvation. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And it is in this context, (coughs) excuse me, it's in this context that Jesus says, I and the Father are one. We have the same will. We are united in will and purpose. I have subordinated my will to His will. There is one plan functioning here. That is the correct interpretation of 1030. Is that there is a unity of purpose, plan, and intent in the Godhead. Because there is a unity of essence in the Godhead. Now, there's a very interesting argument that is developed on the basis of John 10.30 that goes all the way back to the early church. One of the things that amazes a lot of seminary students is some of the most sophisticated arguments for the hypostatic union of the Trinity were developed back in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century and have never been improved upon. And, in fact, they faced all the same heresies and problems that we face today. And we'll make application to one or two of them as we go through this passage. Now, if you look at John 10.30, Augustine made the interesting observation that you have a plural subject here. I and the Father. You have the first person pronoun for I, referring to Jesus. And then you have the masculine uh, Noun with a definite article, ha pater, meaning the Father. So the subject is compound and plural. So that necessitates a plural verb. So it looks like this in the Greek, esmen. And it is the present active indicative, third person plural. Now, the present tense means continuous action. It's from the verb to be, a me, which means continual existence. This is the same verb that we saw in John 1.1 when John writes, In the beginning was. There he used an imperfect tense, continuous action in past time, to indicate the continual existence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Logos, in past time. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Word was God, and the Word word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in about verse 4, there's a shift from a me to genomai. Genomai means to come into existence, and that's the word that was used to describe John the Baptist. Then a man came into existence. It was John the Baptist. And the contrast there indicates the continuous existence of Jesus in contrast to the coming into existence of all mankind and to various creatures. So you have this emphasis here of the verb a me, E-I-M-I in the English, present tense indicates continuous action, active voice, indicative mood, which is the mood of reality, emphasizing the doctrinal reality of, of this position that I and the Father are one. Now, the word one here is where we get into a very interesting scenario. This is its form in the Greek. And this is the neuter form of the number one, which looks like that. H-E-I-S, rough breathing mark there. This is the masculine singular form. This, E-N, or rough breathing mark, E-N, is the 
neuter. Why is that important? I want you to notice what Jesus is doing here. Sometimes people think, why do you make such a big deal about these little, bitty, microscopic details of Scripture? Because Jesus did. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, if he had used the masculine form, he would have been saying, we are one in person. But he is using the neuter, which indicates that they are one in essence, but distinct in person. So what we have that's implicit in this verse is the doctrine of the Trinity. The the separation between Jesus and the Father as distinct persons, yet having the same essence. Go back to the essence of God. God is sovereign. He is righteous. He is just. He is love. He is eternal life. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He is immutable. He never changes. And He is veracity. He is absolute truth. Now, this is the essence of God, which is shared by three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. One in essence... Three in persons. And Jesus is stating this in an implicit way in this particular passage, and it is a claim to his own deity. So let's review how Jesus Christ has claimed deity for himself in the Gospel of John. First of all, point number one, he has continuously used this phrase, ego and me, in the Greek. It means I am, E-G-O. E-I-M-I, I am. And it is the Greek translation of the proper name of God, Y-H-W-H, which we transliterate as Yahweh. I am. In 426, he says, states this to the woman at the well. If you believe that I am. Now, in the English, it says, I am he, but it doesn't have a he. That's supplied by an English translator, and it's false. He says, believe I am. He states it to the disciples in John 6.20. He makes the statement, I am the bread of life in 6.35. And in 6.48, I am the bread of life. In 6.41, the Jews reacted to him and complained because he said, Ego me, I am the bread of life. In 6.51, he uses ego and me again. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And in 8.12, he says, I am the light of the world. Each time he emphasizes that. You see, the thing is in Greek, the subject of the verb is included within the morphology. That means the form of the verb. So if you want to say I am, all you have to do is say a me. You don't have to include the, the, the pronoun with it. It, it. The first person singular is included within the form of the verb. And, it's, and what happens is you add the pronoun for emphasis. So Jesus never had to say, ego e me, yet he continuously uses that phrase because it's identifying him with deity. He's not just doing it because it's a nice little way of saying it or because it's a stylistic variation. He is making a doctrinal point. He says, I am. And he said at the end of chapter 8, 
before Abraham was Genomai, past imperfect tense, before Abraham came into existence, I am, present tense, ego and me. And the Jews did what? They went to pick up stones to stone him because they understood that he was claiming to be God. So this isn't just some little theological subtlety that somebody's trying to pull out of the Bible to make some point. The Jews clearly understood what Jesus was saying when he went to the grammar on these points. So he claimed to be deity through, his, through the use of, of the phrase ego and me. That was point one. Point two, Jesus claimed to, to do the identical functions, to perform the identical functions of God the Father. In John 5.18, he says, The Father is continuously working and I am continuously working. John 5.18. Point number three, he claimed deity when he called himself the Son of God. He was not claiming to have been generated by God or to be the descendant of God. He was not emphasizing the incarnation and virgin birth. He is emphasizing deity. In Hebrew idiom, you would, if somebody was a, a disruptive person, they were called an SOB, son of Belial indicating the characteristic of Belial. If they were disobedient, they were called the sons of disobedience. If they were um, a prophet, they were called the sons of the prophets. That didn't mean that their fathers were prophets. It meant that they were characterized by being a prophet. So that was the emphasis. So when Jesus says he's the son of God, he's not claiming generation from God as much as he is claiming the essence of deity. I am God. So by calling himself God in John 5.19 and 5.25, Jesus is claiming full deity. Point number four. Jesus claimed to be the source of life and to give life just like God the Father did in John 5.21 and 28. So being the source of life is a characteristic of deity and Jesus claimed that for himself. John 5.21 and John 5.28. Point number five. He claimed to have the equal right to judgment as God the Father. That in fact God the Father judges and He judges. Same verb. John 5.22. He had the same right to judgment as God the Father. John 5.22. Point number six. He claimed equal honor with God the Father. That just as God the Father was worthy of all honor, so He was worthy of all honor. In John 5.23. Equal honor with God. John 5.23. Point number seven. He claimed to give life to the dead just as God the Father gives life to the dead. John 5.21. Just as God the Father can raise the dead, so Jesus claimed to be able to raise the dead. Point number eight. He was sent directly from God. In John 6.29, 6.38, John 6.51 and 57, and John 7.28 through 29 Jesus claims to be sent directly from God. Those verses again are John 6, 29, 6, 38, 6, 51, 57, and 7, 28 through 29. And, in John, and last but not least, point number nine, he is the only one to see and reveal God the Father in John 6, 46. So this verse seems, on the, on the face of it, John 10.30 to be just an open and shut case for the deity of Jesus Christ. And it is. And it is. But lest you be confounded 
by the people in the nice suits, dressed nicely, come and knock on your door, passing out tracts from the Watchtower Society. And someday you may be talking with one at the workplace, and they say, well, and you, they say, well, we can't really believe Jesus is fully God. Jesus was a man who became God. As really as we shall see is the old adoptionistic heresy. Jesus was adopted by God. And you say, oh, I've got an argument for that. And you turn your Bible and you say, read John 10.30. I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed to be fully God. And so you're proud of yourself and you throw your Bible out there. But they've been trained, folks. They're going to turn right around and say, oh, really? Well, what did Jesus mean by that? Let's look at the next verse. See what happens. Now, John 10.31 through 33, we see Jesus' dialogue with the Jews and their reaction. First of all, they understand clearly what he said. That's one point you need to make. The Jew, if, if Jesus was just claiming to be another guy with a little extra special authority, the Jews would not have been picking up stones to stone him. They clearly understood in the context that Jesus was claiming to be God. So they reached to pick up stones to stone him. So I want you to note this. Jesus is going to end... This is just so great. For those of you sometimes wonder, why do you get into this little microscopic details of grammar? Jesus' life is at stake. They're getting ready to kill him. He's going to hinge his whole argument on one minor word in a minor psalm. He's just going to pluck one word out of the midst of a psalm, and he's going to base his survival in this life-threatening situation on a point of grammar. That's why we go into the grammar. It's important. Jesus did it, so we need to do it. It, it tells us a lot. The Jews took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus immediately said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Now, he uses the aorist active of the verb degnumi, which means to reveal, to demonstrate the meaning of something, to present evidence. This is one of those legal words that we have in the context here. Jesus is talking about that I presented evidence. I brought forth all the evidence of who I am, that I am the Son of God. I do the works of the Father that He gave me. And so that's implicit in this verb that He uses. And then He says, For which of them are you stoning me? Verse 33, The Jews answered Him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. They understand that He has claimed to be God. But notice how they twisted. John just uses this irony over and again in John. He said, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. Now, how many times have you been in a witnessing situation and you've been telling an unbeliever about the gospel and they say, well, how do you know Jesus was God? How do you know that anybody can come along and claim to be God? What's wrong with that? Jesus was not a man who claimed to be God. Jesus was God who claimed to be a man. They get it backwards, just like the Jews did. Jesus was not, the scripture does not present Jesus as a man who claims to be God. The scripture presents Jesus as God who became a man. And we have to make that point. Don't let the ignorance of an unbeliever twist the scriptures, set the agenda, and set a logical trap that you're going to fall into, and then you're stuck. 
Always let the Scriptures define the issues for, for you. The Jews answered, said, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself out to be God. And notice how sophisticated Jesus' response is. Verse 34. Jesus answered them and said, Has it not been written in your law? I said, You are God's. Now, first of all, we have to look at his use of the word law here. This is a general term for the Old Testament. Sometimes the Old Testament is referred to as the law and the prophets. Sometimes it was just referred to by the, ter- by the term the law. In the Hebrew Old Testament, there were three divisions. The first is the Torah, which is the law, which consists of the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The second division was called the prophets. And this was divided into the, the uh, uh, major prophets and the, and the minor prophets, not minor prophets like, like we have. And this would cover uh, many of the, some of the historical books. Samuel was the early prophets. and uh, It's called early prophets and later prophets. The early prophets would be Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. And then later prophets would be Jeremiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Not Daniel, and then the twelve. They were called the twelve. They weren't called. We call them the minor prophets because they're small, not because they're less significant. They're called the minor prophets because they're short, and the Jews put them together in one book, and it was just called the twelve. So that was the prophets, and then you had the third division. This was the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And these were all the other books, the poetry books, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and, and that. But the term law was used to refer to the whole. So Jesus is going to quote not from the Torah. He's going to quote from the Psalms, specifically Psalm 82. So let's turn back to Psalm 82 so we can see where this is coming from. Psalm chapter 82. Once again, you just can't understand much of what is going on in the New Testament if you don't have a good knowledge of the Old Testament. That is one reason why I've decided that once we finish the Galatians series in a few weeks, then we will embark on an introductory survey of the Old Testament and the first hour on Sunday, which will take about three or four months. And then when we finish that, we will embark on a study of, of uh, the book of Judges. So we look at Psalm 82, look down at verse 6. Let's pick up the context a little bit. Verse 1, God takes a stand in His own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. So the subject here is going to deal with the supreme court of heaven and God's authority as the ultimate judge in the universe. And then the question is raised in verse 2, how long will you judge unjustly? It's a challenge to the human judges. And so partiality to the wicked. See, they're falling apart. There's an unjust system operating in Israel at this time. And the the call is made in verse 3, vindicate the weak and the fatherless. In other words, pay more attention to the victim than the criminal. Do justice to the afflicted and the destitute. Now, I could really preach on this for a while. 
but I won't let myself get distracted. We live in a country today that has the same problem. We pay more attention to the vic- I mean, to the criminal and criminals' rights than we do the victims of crimes. And we're so concerned about uh, the criminal and making sure that he, they, they live in, in uh, country club prisons and jails with all kinds of things that their victims uh, don't have or don't have anymore. They have to go out and spend their fortune to uh, recoup because the criminal has taken them from them. So here's the thrust. Vindicate the weak and the fatherless. Put the focus on the victim, not on the criminal. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the weak, of the wicked. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundation of the earth is shaken. I said, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. Now this is the verse Jesus is talking about. God is the one speaking. I said... You are gods. To whom is he speaking? He is speaking to earthly judges and rulers in Israel. So this is talking about the rulers of the people. Incidentally, doesn't this remind you somewhat of the charge brought against the false shepherds in Ezekiel chapter uh, 34, which we read earlier? And these rulers, because they are in the divine viewpoint of legislation, remember Romans chapter 13 says, God appoints the rulers of this world as ministers of righteousness. So, judges and rulers, God in Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic covenant delegated judicial authority to the human race. So, because God delegated this judicial authority, human judges are called Elohim because they function in the place of the Supreme Court of Heaven, who is God, Elohim. Now, that's the thrust of this passage. And the human judges are called to repent of their unjust and inconsistent application of the judicial principle because they represent the Supreme Court of Heaven. Now, this is not one of those major psalms. It's not a messianic psalm. It's not a psalm of David. It's not a psalm that you've probably read before or memorized. And yet, Jesus goes into this less, lesser-known psalm, and he goes to this one verse that's somewhat obscure and hard. He plucks out this one phrase and he hinges his whole argument on this. He says, isn't it written in your law, I said, you are God's. So his first principle is going to be, there's a principle in Scripture of calling the human rulers of Israel Elohim. Secondly, let's look at verse 35. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came. And then he makes this little aside, this little parenthetical remark. Don't miss it. And the scripture cannot be broken. That's the infallibility of the word of God. The scripture cannot be broken. The Pharisees understood that. They believed in the infallibility of scripture and Jesus believes in the infallibility of scripture. 
Jesus believes in total inerrancy, and he is, and he believes that inerrancy extends down to the minutia of Scripture. He's not talking about the fact that just the broad ideas and general concepts of the Bible are inspired, but every detail down to the very words themselves are inspired and breathed out by God. What's our definition of inspiration? Our definition of inspiration comes from the Greek word theotnoustos, which is used in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's a compound word from theos, meaning God, and noustos, meaning breath. Same root as pneuma for the Holy Spirit. And it literally means God breathed. It doesn't mean inspired in the sense that we talk about Michelangelo being inspired when he did the Sistine Chapel. Or we talk about Leonardo da Vinci being inspired when he thought of all of his many different inventions and contraptions or whatever. It's talking about the fact that God breathes into the writers of Scripture the doctrine he wants them to communicate and so overrides what they write that he guarantees that the output, the exhale of that, is going to be without error but he's going to do it in a way that doesn't override their individual personality, background, style, etc. So here's our definition. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, their vocabulary, their individuality, their literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. I'll say that one more time. God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture. It is God breathing into the the writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence... Some may have had a higher IQ than others. Some may have had a greater education than others. Without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, Paul had one vocabulary, John had another vocabulary, Peter had yet a different vocabulary. You know, that's one of the interesting things to note. God does not give the gift of pastor-teacher to just certain personality types. Neither does God expect all pastors to use the same vocabulary, teach the same way, or articulate doctrine the same way. John was very different in his terminology, vocabulary, sentence structure, everything, than the Apostle Paul. Peter, again, is very different. Each has their own individual personality that comes across in the writing of Scripture. And yet God uses all of these different personalities in the communication of his word. So he doesn't waive uh, individual personality, literary style, personal feelings, or any other human factor. But he can guarantee that his complete and coherent message to mankind is recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages, in the original autographs, which, of course, we no longer have. But the issue is, if you start with something perfect, you may have certain textual variants that creep in at points, but you still have the original. You just have to figure out what got added. You don't have to worry about the fact that you start with something that has error initially. There's a vast difference. With perfect accuracy, in the original languages of Scripture, the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, Jesus uses a very sophisticated argument here. 
He is basing this completely on an understanding of the infallibility of Scripture. The Word of God cannot be broken. And on one word, Elohim, the plural of that word. If he called them gods to whom the God, the Word of God came and the Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent, that is, he's speaking of himself, say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said... I am the Son of God. Now, what's his point? Jesus is using an argument from the lesser to the greater here. He's saying, if you don't have a problem applying Elohim to human rulers, how much more is it correct to apply that to the Son of God, who has demonstrated that he is deity by all the works that he's performed? See, he's using a very tight, logical argument that is based upon the infallibility of Scripture. Now, if the Scripture wasn't infallible, or if Jesus is just accommodating himself to the superstitious views of his generation about the Old Testament, then Jesus would be very foolish indeed to be uh, basing his life on this use of the Word. So this is a very strong passage for demonstrating Jesus' view of the infallibility and inerrancy of the Old Testament. And it's all based upon one word, Elohim. Now I want you to notice that in this one passage we've seen the Trinity, back in verse 30, based upon the use of a grammatical neuter instead of a grammatical masculine. And here we see that Jesus defends his deity on the basis of the use of Elohim, one word in Psalm 32. So we see right here the fact that inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture extends not just to the words, but down to their very grammatical forms and syntactical functions. So Jesus uses a very sophisticated argument here, and he says, if you call these men Elohim, how much more just and correct is it for you to call me Elohim? Me, because I'm the one the Father sent into the world. I am the one who has demonstrated through my works and given evidence that I am the Son of God. Verse 37, he says, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Now, this, again, is a very profound argument. He gives the condition in verse 37. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. The emphasis is on belief here on the basis of his works. Now, I want to take you back a long time ago in John chapter 2. At the end of John 2, this is after the uh, events where Jesus has turned the water into wine. And Jesus has come down into Jerusalem, and he's at the temple, he throws the money changers out, and he performs various miracles. And there it says that because they saw these signs, many believed on him. And then the next verse it says, but Jesus did not trust himself to them because he knew what was in the hearts of man. Now, there is a school of thought out there called Lordship Salvation. And there are many people who take that passage, even people who don't believe in Lordship Salvation, as saying that because Jesus didn't trust himself to these people who believed on him, that that indicates that their faith wasn't a saving faith. 
Now the problem is that throughout the Gospel of John, and even here in John 10, you have this same phrase used over and again to indicate the, the one condition for salvation. It's the Greek verb pistuo, P-I-S-T-E-U-O, plus the preposition ace, E-I-S, believe in or believe that. That's the same phrase he uses in John 20, 30, and 31. It's the same phrase he uses in John 3, 16. It's the same phrase he uses there in John, at the end of John 2, when he says, many, because of these miracles, because of these signs, many believed in him. Now, that indicates to me that if that phrase means saving faith everywhere else, it must mean it there. But there are people who say no because Jesus didn't trust himself to them. It really wasn't saving faith. It was an inadequate faith because it was based on miracles and what Jesus did. That's their argument. This contradicts that, doesn't it? Look at what Jesus says. If I don't do the works, don't believe me. But if I do the works then believe me. In other words, Jesus is validating the fact that you can have saving faith based on miracles. In fact, that's John's whole thesis. These signs are written that you might believe and that by believing you might have eternal life. So a faith based on the signs and evidences and credentials that Jesus established by his miracles is not some lesser faith. In fact, the reason Jesus did not entrust himself to those believers is because all they had was regeneration. They did not have sanctification. And there are a lot of believers, and I know you know a few believers like this, that you wouldn't turn your back on to save your life. You wouldn't trust them any further than you can see them because they have not had their character transformed by the Word of God. They're not trustworthy. Oh, they're going to end up in heaven. It so surprises me how many Christians have this naive view that because somebody is a Christian and a believer that they're trustworthy. And, you know, that's the whole principle underlying these Christian yellow pages, that these are companies that I can trust this guy because he's a believer. That doesn't really mean anything. You might be able to trust him, and there might be some good people there who have some spiritual maturity and some integrity and are trustworthy. But just because somebody's a believer doesn't mean they're automatically trustworthy. But that's this naive assumption that underlies that interpretation of John chapter 2. And it also falls apart on a number of other areas because they're assuming there's two different kinds of saving faith, one that works and one that doesn't, and that just opens a whole quagmire of confusion. Verse 37, Jesus says, if I don't do the works, don't believe me. See, the whole issue again here is faith, believe me. But if I do them, in other words, if I actually do these works and you can substantiate them and you can't reject them, he says, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Once again, he is indicating their unity of plan and purpose and design. The Jews clearly understood this. And in verse 39, we read, therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. And he, he eludes their grasp. He slips out of the temple area and he departs. Verse 40, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And notice the contrast here. And many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. And what's the result? Many, pistuo ace, believed in him there. 
They didn't believe in him in the temple. Notice the contrast between the religious leaders who reject Jesus, the leaders of the people, and the people who come to him 30 or 40 miles out in the desert. They had to travel. They had to put up with hardship. They had to go down to the Jordan Valley. They had to go out of their way to get to them. But many went to him, and they believed in him, and accepted the free gift of salvation, even though it, was no, it wasn't convenient. You know, this isn't the modern approach to, to evangelism, where we beg people to be saved. Oh, please accept Jesus. Please come to church. Jesus never approached it that way. Jesus makes the offer, but he doesn't beg people to be saved. He doesn't grovel. And that's sort of the modern way of approaching evangelism is, well, there's lots of options. Why don't you take Jesus too? And then you'll be sure you're saved. You know, that is not a biblical approach to evangelism. It is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because he is who he claimed to be. He gave evidence of that time and time again through his miracles, through uh, the deeds that he did, through what he said, through what he claimed. And there is no way that you can... We uh, can accept the fact that Jesus is a good man and accept the Bible. The Bible clearly presents Jesus as making claims to deity over and over again, and there's no alternative but to either accept him at his word and believe on him or to reject him, but you can't claim he was just a good man. You, you're, you're left with only those three options. He's either the Lord who he claimed to be, or he's a liar or a lunatic. You can't hide behind some sort of rationalization that he was just a good man or that he was just a a good moral leader or religious innovator. Now, this concludes a major section in John, the contrast, the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And then next time we'll come back to John 11, and this begins the lead-in to the crucifixion. Everything shifts. We've read these discourses over and over again. And next time we come to the, to the episode with Lazarus and the lead-in to the crucifixion, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study these things today, to see the clear testimony of Scripture, which tells us that Jesus is indeed the eternal second person of the Trinity. He is fully God and fully man, undiminished deity and true humanity, united together in one person forever. And by virtue of that, he was perfect, impeccable. He was able to go to the cross and die there as a substitute for us. He bore in his body on the cross our sins. He who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning, right now, that is uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation, that you would make the gospel clear to them. And they would take this opportunity to express through the privacy of their their, uh, their thoughts alone to express to you, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's all that is necessary. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we thank you for the things that we have learned and pray that you would challenge us with these things. In Jesus' name, amen.